Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC, and in this series I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world about big ideas. And today I'm going to be talking to one of the big idea men himself, Dr. Tom Davenport. Tom is a world-renowned thought leader who combines his interests in research, teaching, and business management as the President's Distinguished Professor in Management and Information Technology at Babson. Tom has written or co-authored 16, count them, 16 best-selling business books and is one of Harvard Business Review's most frequently published authors. Full disclosure, Tom has also served for many years on the APQC Board of Directors, of which we are very pleased. The reason he's perfect for this interview is that he's the creator or the early author of several key business ideas, including, and these are big ones, competing on analytics, big data, knowledge management, one that's close to my heart, human approaches to information management, business process reengineering, and realizing the value of enterprise systems. So when Tom tells me he's working on a new book idea, my ears perk up because that could be one of the next big things. So Tom, I mean, you told me that you were interested in working on a new book about how knowledge workers can be augmented by smart machines or be automated out of a job by them. What drove you to be interested in this or write this book? Well, Carla, you know, I've, I've had a long-term interest in knowledge workers. I wrote a book, not, not particularly well-selling, moderate at best, on how to improve the performance and effectiveness of knowledge workers a few years ago. It was called Thinking for a Living. Um, it didn't really talk so much about the automation issue there, just a tiny bit. Um, but then there have been um, a number of things that have come along in the in the past year or so that that got me much more interested in this book. Um, a couple of friends of mine from MIT, um, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee, wrote a book called The Second Machine Age, which argues that um, a lot of jobs, not they weren't so much focused on knowledge workers, but a lot of jobs, mostly kind of middle-level jobs like you know driving trucks and and so on, were going to be automated out of existence. Um, other people have written about this. An economist named Tyler Cowen at George Mason wrote a book called Average Is Over. Um, you had all these interesting developments in terms of new technology, so-called cognitive computing, and, and the analytics work that I've been focused on for a while. So um, it all made me think and believe that knowledge workers really were threatened by um, having their jobs automated out of existence. And so my point is not to um, argue that, since other people have already successfully, I think, argued it, but sort of give them some approaches for fighting back, if you will. And I'm co-authoring this book with Julia Kirby, whom I think you know. She's an editor at Harvard Business Review and an old friend and pal of mine. Well, see, as a, as a quintessential knowledge worker myself who produces virtually nothing in the physical world, I don't mind being supported by technology. In fact, I have a certain umbilical cord relationship with several pieces of it, but I don't relish the thought of being automated out of a job. So say some more about augmentation versus automation. I mean, how is it, and, and then, yeah, say some more about that. Well, um, automation, of course, means the kind of takeover of whole jobs or, in some cases, um, 
parts of jobs, particular tasks, by machines. And that's not a terribly new idea. It's been going on since the Industrial Revolution. But we're kind of in the kind of what I define as the third era of this, where the first era was the um, physical labor being automated by machines. That's what was going on uh, in the Industrial Revolution. And then um, in the latter half of the 20th century and early parts of the 21st, you had a lot of automation of kind of um, what I call transactional work, um, mostly service-oriented work. So, you know, if you go into an airport these days and you want to get your boarding pass or you want to buy a ticket, um, chances are pretty good that you'll do that through a machine. And there, there are still some humans hanging around, but far fewer of them than there used to be behind the ticket counter. And, you know, we see this in bank tellers with ATMs and various other other fields. Um, and so the third era, I think, is knowledge workers. And we've always thought, you know, um, knowledge work, that's too unstructured, too um, judgment-oriented to be automated. But um, if you look around, some of the highest valued, most, um, most uh, aspired uh, to knowledge work jobs, like doctors and lawyers and uh, accountants and so on um, can increasingly be automated these days. And so I'm arguing on behalf of the humans, uh, since I happen to be one, um, and um, trying to figure out how they can keep their jobs and add value to these um, knowledge work processes where machines can increasingly play a, a major role. Well, then that raises two uh, questions, and I don't care which one we deal with first. I mean, the first one is what would be what jobs are at the most risk? You mentioned a few of them. What are the characteristics of knowledge worker jobs that are going to be at the most risk? And then the second question, of course, be what do we do about it? Um, well, yeah. So the first question is, I think um, almost any job that's done by a lot of people. Um, and, you know, costs a fair amount, and that makes it economical for somebody to, to develop an automated solution for it. So um, if I'm a lawyer, um, increasingly a lot of work in commercial um, litigation involves looking at documents and trying to decide whether documents are material to a case or not, and is there something incriminating in, a, in those huge amounts of emails that that come uh, spinning around a company and so on. And that you know, has a name, it's called e-discovery because it turns out that computers are pretty good at first you know, kind of capturing images of those documents and now um, analyzing the text in them through something called predictive coding. You can um, make a pretty good decision about whether a document is material or not without a human lawyer ever having to look at it. And so a lot of those, um, frankly, those are relatively low level, they're kind of entry level lawyer jobs. Many of them actually have been um, outsourced and commoditized um, to other organizations. Some have gone offshore, but increasingly they're not going to exist at all because um, computers can do them. 
this morning I was doing some research in in the healthcare space, looking at which healthcare jobs are going to be automated, and um, the ones that are of particular concern are the ones that are highly um, digitized, uh, the ones that don't involve direct contact with patients and the decisions that are very, you know, frequently made. So, um, for example, um, you know, un unfortunately, I'm not that prepared to talk about these personally because I am a male, but um, radiology, image scanning for breast cancer. Turns out already there are some very good solutions for automated solutions for identifying um, the, you know, likely lesions in uh, in breast cancer images that could um, be cause for concern. Um, in uh, pap smears for cervical cancer screening, again, um, these, this is fairly straightforward. I learned this morning that over 60 million are done in the U.S. every year, and um, as pathological uh, diagnosis goes, it's one of the easier ones to do, and it turns out computers are pretty good at it. So and in both of those cases, you know, you have digitized, neither radiologists nor pathologists um, see patients directly, typically. Um, uh, happens a lot, uh, expensive, and um, fully, fully digitized. That's kind of a recipe for, for automation if you're not careful. Well, I'll give you a couple of other examples that I have just seen uh, manifest themselves more and more recently. One is that with uh, uh, surgeons in trying to detect the presence of certain kinds of diseases like kidney disease and so on, the decision trees are almost completely automated now about whether they will do a biopsy or not, what the probability is of a certain kind of pattern coming back that gives you uh, uh, you know, the chances that it's cancerous versus not. Um, it's, it's quite dramatic. I happened to see that with a friend recently, and the surgeon just spent all his time drawing decision trees on the paper that goes on the examining, t examining table. And we walked off with the paper from the examining table explaining the, the probabilities. So uh, That's interesting. Yeah, it is a matter of statistical probability in many cases. And, Carla, it almost has to be this way because I was doing some work with Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying, well, we think there are now 400 different types of cancer. Um, there are, for breast cancer alone, there are over 75 different drugs to choose from. It's getting into your genomic profile, your proteomic profile to determine what treatment approaches make sense. You know, this is what um, Obama's been talking about over the last week or two since the State of the Union address with precision medicine. Humans can't keep all of that in their brain, so uh, it has to be automated to some degree. Mm-hmm, I agree. There, actually, I, I'll recommend to our uh, audience and to you, uh, you may be familiar with it, a recent book called The Organized Mind, which is actually the history of how we organize our knowledge from libraries to filing cabinets. And um, but he's got a whole two chapters on how to help you make healthcare decisions. That the sort of individual medicine, the precision medicine, is is such that people are getting and we're being way test, over tested, in my opinion. So you're going to get a lot of data back that could indicate something's wrong. How do you make a decision whether you do something about it or not? And it's non-obvious decision making, non-obvious math. So I thought that was interesting that that's starting to come out these aids to individuals to help them do that. 
Yeah, I did not know about that book. I see he, the author's a cognitive neuroscientist. Yeah. That's what I wish I had become, a cognitive neuroscientist. It sounds so much smarter than what I, what I, I ended know, up. No, it's kind of like the new rocket scientist. The, so that, what you said, that's very interesting, that they may not be custom, you know, patient-facing, that it's uh, enough data and it's a repeating activity that, that, could be that can be digitized, but there's enough data that you could actually perform analytics on it and give people probabilities. And that's really what we're, uh, one of the things we're talking about here. I noticed, though, that, um, so the radiologists were one that you mentioned and, and others. I noticed that when, I, when we got this kind of information back from a doctor, my friend did, that there was then the whole decision on what do you do? Do we go ahead and do a biopsy or not, you know, when the decision tree was there? Because there's risk associated with it. If we're all going to be, you know, just augmenting Watson and other smart machines, you know, how can we make those kind of decisions? What happens to the what we used to think of as compassion? Is that still, that's not being affected by this movement? Um, no, you know, I think um, one of the things we're trying to do in this book is identify the things that humans are uniquely good at, and I think it's probably fair to say that um, uh, compassion is still one of those things. You know, maybe you could program compassion into a machine, although I'm not sure anybody's um, done a good job of it yet, but, um, you know, the um, the the list is still fairly long of things that we're good at, but it's kind of shrinking all the time, uh, or, or better at than computers, I should say. And so, uh, uh, for example, last week there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal, maybe you saw it, about um, Dr. Paul Ekman, who has classified all these facial expressions um, um, to identify, are, you know, are you really um, smiling or is it kind of a smile uh, tinged with anxiety? And he's, he's um, classified all these and now computers can identify it. And, you know, I think I'm reasonably okay at identifying facial expressions, but I think it's a fairly good bet that the computer would do a better job at it than I can. So um, we can People are starting to use it for marketing purposes and, you know, in a focus group instead of asking people what they think, which is fraught with peril, they often tell you what they think you want to know, um, we can analyze their facial expressions and get a much better idea of what they really think. And that, you know, raises some interesting kind of privacy um, issues. Uh, are we diagnosing things that we have no right to, to diagnose, but it's happening more and more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just have sort of a technical question about this. Um, how is this uh, different than what's happened to so many industries in the past where there's been disintermediation, where they take the middleman out of the of process? I mean, sometimes we just, as you mentioned earlier, bank tellers, you've taken them out just because we can digitize this. How is, how is this different? Um, I think that it has some relationship to that topic, although, you know, in, in um, what I'm talking about, I guess, is in some cases the elimination of human intermediaries. Um, you know, if you're just an order taker um, or um, somebody who stands between um, uh, a consumer and what they want, um, you know, you're, you're probably not making a lot of decisions anyway. You know, most of what knowledge workers have uniquely done is to, you know, use their judgment to make better decisions. And so 
Um, but that disintermediation is happening as well. And you know, if, for example, you are an uh, insurance um, agent or broker, um, is that a knowledge work job? Well, you know, you probably have some unique knowledge about the differences between a husband and wife's um, tolerant, likely tolerance for risk. And so you're not just taking the order, you're not just being a pure intermediary, um, but if you, if you aren't making effective use of that knowledge that you've accumulated, then you have a pretty good chance of, of losing your job, I would say. It's one of the people I interviewed who's a financial planner said, you know, the, the aspect of my job that doesn't go away is the psychiatric aspect um, as the psychiatric aspects of financial planning, and computers can't do that very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, because while we think we may have a risk profile, if the market plunges, it all of a sudden changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and um, the, you know, we, we know uh, from behavioral economics that most people are not very rational about their finances, and so understanding that and being able to persuade people to act um, against their normal inclinations is a very valuable role for a financial planner to play. And you know, computers are not very good at understanding human irrationality. Mm -hmm. So would one role, uh, you were talking about how the humans can, we can keep our jobs and actually add value, not just be Luddites, but actually add value. How, uh, one role to use machines is to give you the predictive analytics, perhaps, and the patterns, and then you start overlaying some of these judgments in psychology. What have, what have you and Julia found are, are thinking about are the things that where we really can add value to our machines? Well, we're trying to identify, you know, some different strategies, and, and we've come up with what we hope is a semi-catchy approach to thinking about this. There are sort of what we call it five steps. Um, uh, that that humans can take to augment um, smart machines. One is to um, step in, to sort of uh, get into the, the belly of the beast, if you will, and understand how these computers make decisions and understand their strengths and weaknesses and uh, when they might go astray and so on. Um, another is to kind of step up and say, well, yeah, the computer's doing this, but it's not doing this, you know, and financial planning, um, computers do a good job of creating kind of an ideal portfolio for a customer, but there are a lot of things that they don't do um, yet very well. Um, retirement planning, uh, planning for disability, et cetera, all of those things. So you kind of step up to look at the big picture. Um, there's um, stepping aside, which is to say, well, com if computers do portfolio allocation well, I'm going to step in, step aside into the things they don't do well at all, like the, you know, the um, psychiatric aspects, as the, the person I interviewed described them. Um, they're stepping narrowly, which is to choose a, um, a task or an activity, a job that is so narrow that nobody would ever be tempted to automate it. It just wouldn't be economical to do so. So, um, you know, I, I, um, my favorite example is uh, I read about in the Boston Globe where I, I, I live much of the year, um, they wrote about a guy whose, whose job is to connect buyers and sellers of Dunkin' Donuts franchises, and that's all he does. He makes a huge amount of money at it. Apparently, he drives a Rolls Royce around, um, you know, 
there's not going to be enough demand for that activity to kind of capture the rules and make the automated connection between buyers and sellers of Dunkin' Donuts franchises. And then finally, there's the sort of build-the-step option, which is, uh, you know, you can these machines are still built by humans, and so you can become a you know an artificial intelligence programmer or something like that, and still be quite likely to be employed. So, Luke, I like that use of steps, step in, step up, step aside, step narrowly, and build a step. Um, that's not going to make a lot of jobs, which goes back to your first point about the second machine age. We really may be headed for a life of leisure, which is what, sex, drugs, and rock and roll? I mean, what? <laughs> that, that's going to be very interesting, I think, at least for the developed world, the highly developed world. Yeah, we better we better um, brush up on our fishing skills or whatever. But you know, one of the concerns, Carla, is that um, uh, yes, fewer people will have jobs, and but right now, um, income and um, survival really is tied to having a job. Um, we don't have any good way for you know, millions of people to live without jobs. And so it would require some fairly massive changes in our society and our politics and so on that I don't think we're, we're quite ready for. So it's, it's pretty scary right now. It could be quite appealing that, you know, we can all just paint and fish and read and so on um, instead of slaving away at boring jobs sometimes, but um, we're not quite set up for that yet. No, and, and historically, in you know macroeconomics, unless people are creating value, the product and the productivity is going up. Wealth is not being created; it's just being consumed, and that's the part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I think um, there are people who argue that um, you know we should well, we should resist these automation tendencies. We should make sure that there's um, interesting work for us humans, but I, you know, I don't think capitalism works that way. I think people find a, the most efficient way to do things, and they adopt it and figure, eh, you know, these people will be able to find some other kind of job. And they historically they have. Um, we've always been able to move upstream, but I'm not sure there's any place to go if you start automating jobs like doctors and lawyers and journalists and um, teachers. I think teachers have a lot to fear from um, a lot of these, these issues as well. I'm sure, yeah, they've already been affected. I, I, do, I agree with you. Resistance is futile. It's, it's going to happen. So what do we do about it is the, is the real answer. And, you know, I wonder, you talked about going up. There may be uh, the other side of that uh, pyramid is the going down, the whole peer-to-peer -peer sharing economy, the Airbnb, Uber, uh, and, and so on. Those things may be a way to fill in at the bottom. Yeah, if you have some assets, you can share them and make some money off of them in ways that you couldn't have done before. Mm -hmm. But again, we're not set up to protect people in that kind of economy because they're freelancers. They don't have any right, basically virtually any rights, although that is being challenged and changing uh, as we go. But anyway, I digress. I think this is uh, one of those big trends, Tom, that you are always good at seeing. And 
giving people advice. I know I was I was excited a few years ago when Watson beat the uh, the Jeopardy you know um, champions, and I thought that's really cool. Uh, but I didn't think about Watson taking over for me. And I well, yeah. What's Ken Jennings going to do for a living now? No, just kidding. <laughs> that's right. Do TED talks maybe? Yeah. Yeah. So you, I, I know you're still looking, you're still in the middle of writing this and you're still looking for stories to tell. What kind of companies or situations might you be looking for if they wanted to reach out to us? And well, the, you know, the best thing, Carla, if anybody has anything like this is, you know, if you're a knowledge worker and you feel um, a bit uh, threatened by um, all of these capabilities would love to love to hear about it. Can either you know mention these people explicitly or or anonymize them, whatever they prefer. Um, if you're a company and you have had kind of widespread moves to do this, there aren't too many. But in insurance, for example, underwriting um, uh, processes have been being automated for the last. 10 or 20 years, and so they're pretty far along, and some insurance executives may have a strategy for how they kind of move um, uh, the, that particular type of knowledge worker into other domains. That, that would be great. Would love to, love to hear about it. All right. Well, that's a very clear request for help. We will see if your fellow humans and knowledge workers <laughs> step up to that. Tom, that's all the uh, time we have today. I want to thank you so much for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. This is one of those big ideas. If you'd like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. And thank you for listening and have a great day. <laughs>